Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is produced in association with Jazz Times. Drummer Joe LaBarbera has worked with Phil Woods, Art Farmer, Bob Brookmeyer, Tony Bennett, and many other celebrated jazz greats. But it's his work with pianist Bill Evans that he documents in his new book, Times Remembered, The Final Years of the Bill Evans Trio, which he co-wrote with Charles Levine. This sensitive portrayal sheds light on the joys and challenges of the jazz world and the unique place that Bill Evans' music and philosophy played within it. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Knowing my love for stride-style jazz, Joe Barbara brought me a track of Bill Evans at a recording session playing stride not a style necessarily associated with Bill. He loved stride, he loved boogie-woogie. He had a reputation as the fastest boogie-woogie piano player in southeastern New Jersey when he was in high school. Uh, but it, it really speaks to how much he investigated the music. He loved, he loved all the stride piano players. He loved all the bebop piano players. I've got another track that I could have sent you of him playing uh, back home again in Indiana at a blistering tempo, a la Bud Powell. He's uh, killing it. Yeah. <laughs> so all of this is in Bill, just like Thelonious Monk had a whole world of music in his playing. But what they do is they, they use it to their advantage to, to find their own sound and their own voice. But the average Bill Evans fan would no way would, would, understand, would even think that Bill Evans could play stride jazz piano. What you said that's really important to me was the phrase that it was in their music. It was all in there. That's why they could do what they Mm. did, because they grew out of that. And it's especially significant to me because I remember when I first came on the scene, it was really a thing for piano players to play with bass players and comp in a different way so that those Older guys said to me, they always introduced me as a two-handed piano player, which you wouldn't hear anybody say these days, but you know what I mean. She's a two-handed piano player. And it was just like, it became almost a thing that people, the piano players couldn't play Mm -hmm. without a bass player. Mm -hmm. Speak to that, because I don't think a lot of people now, especially our younger listeners or fans, musicians, realize that it kind of went in a different direction. Yeah, I think Bill's generation is certainly, you mentioned Hank Jones earlier, maybe it was before we went on air. You know, they grew up playing that music, but they also probably probably had the opportunity, I know Bill did, to play solo piano gigs. And so you would need that in order to fill out a whole evening or a whole afternoon's worth of uh, playing. And we have to talk about this other, the Sea Jam Blues, because these two are the most surprising tracks yeah. for me that just tickled me. So talk about Sea Jam Blues, because that's really going to knock out people that that's going to surprise their ears. 
Well, as opposed to Petrushka, which Bill was in his well into his 30s when he recorded with Stan Getz and Elvin and Ron Carter, uh, C-Jam Blues, I think Bill is 14, as a matter of fact, and he's playing pretty smoking <laughs> hot for a 14-year-old. There are no loose ends anywhere. Nothing is, nothing is, not, is no detail is left un, unattended. <laughs> so he just he he kills it even right down to that ending which kind of fades out at the um he had a band with uh, some of his high school buddies and i think those same musicians the tenor player and the drummer they all ended up going on to uh, college with bill uh in uh, louisiana which is where bill's older brother harry went on the gi bill when he got out of the out of the navy so bill just kind of followed harry down there but that those three musicians went together down to uh, Louisiana and played all through all through college Merry Christmas Harry. this is PJ from Mom and Dad <laughs> I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I'm talking with Joe LaBarbera about his book, Times Remembered, The Final Years of the Bill Evans Trio, which he co-wrote with Charles Levine. Well, your wonderful book that just knocked me out on every level. You know, I've just, I've I've written you fan letters about this book because I'm so crazy about it. I've recommended it to everybody. One of the things that struck me was... We're talking about, obviously, an important musician in jazz, 
but also one with a sad story because of his drug addiction. But this book goes so far beyond that for me because it, it, it informs the reader about the jazz life, just some basic things. And I know I keep coming back to piano, but you even talked about the fact that Bill would get inferior pianos. And of course, I've dealt with that my whole life. And the people don't know that it's logical that if you can get the money and everything else together to hire a Bill Evans, that you give him a good instrument and that it makes a difference. And you didn't harp on that, but that's an important fact. And you just put it there for people to see. And the needs of a band and what the day-to-day things go through without this romanticized view of the road, which people almost do get romantic about that it's tough, but we somehow love it. No, we like a good gig with a good piano and a good sound. And speak to that, because I love that that was a focus of this book. You and had other people that would give their memories of certain things with Bill, but they were also giving perspective on the life, as it were. So talk about that. I love that choice. Well, you know, what what Charles Levin, my co-author, and I were trying to do was humanize Bill. We wanted to make him a real person, you know, because every jazz fan, and especially Bill Evans fans, is, are going to idolize the artist. But to get a little bit of insight into what it's like to be a working musician, which he should have been right at the top, top of the heap in anybody's uh, estimation, he would occasionally get pianos that were not up to his level. And uh, he would just plow through, you know, you're, you're a professional, you're going to do your job. So, uh, but when you, when you see the result that we got from, let's say the Paris concert, or when he played at Carnegie, when we played at Carnegie Hall and other, other venues where they are, where they took the time to provide a good piano, that small theater in uh, Vancouver, it was, it was a, it was a baby grand piano, but this piano tuner had spent hours and hours regulating the action and tuning. This guy was a pro, and that concert was amazing. So given the right instrument, your audience is going to walk away feeling like they've been transported. And uh, the result, of course, from from Paris was they were able to get a couple of albums out of of it as well. With most of the pianos, uh, that wouldn't have been possible. The one, the one time that, where I point out that we had a piano that was so bad that Bill refused to play, and I mean it was unbelievably trashed, that piano, no one, no, not even an amateur pianist would have sat down to that instrument and tried to play. And that's why I was so grateful that uh, Malcolm uh, Page, who I befriended years later, he's a drummer up in Calgary, who was there, and had actually seen that piano on numerous occasions, having done club dates in that in that hotel, said that piano was the worst thing he'd ever seen in his life. And he described it exactly as I remembered it. That's where those witnesses really came in handy because they add, a, a, you know, a, a confirmation to what my memory was bringing mm. to the book. Right, right. And I think that that a point, not to belabor this, but I feel that People will say, well, you're a professional, so you need something else. And what they don't realize, I always say, is that all of this energy that could be going into the music for us as piano players 
And somebody who's as connected as Bill on such a high level to the core of that muse, all of that's going into getting past that the piano is not responding to what he's telling it to do, telling his fingers. That's one thing. The sound is awful. So what's coming back at us is something very often that's offensive. So you're having to tell your brain, don't be offended and not hit that note. And I mean, I've had it where I had a middle F gone on a piano. The string was gone. So that means that when I hit that note, it hurt because there was no resistance. So I'm now telling myself, don't hit that note. And I remember that the presenter said, well, is that an important note? (laughs) (laughs) I said, well, personally, I like to think they're all important notes, but this one is in the middle. (laughs) It does get played a lot. And it was just incredible. So I think that it's important that people understand this because they'll appreciate the music more, but maybe they're, they will be a concert presenter or they will in some, you know, be involved with this in some way. So it's the better they make the situation, the better it is for us. You talked about your first introduction to Bill. And I would think that that would be that pretty much everybody would remember their first. Mm -hmm. I remember specifically, I'm sure everybody does. So talk about that because it was, especially in the early years, it was such he was so different mm-hmm. from everything that was happening. It was just a revelation. So talk about that for you. And that was my reaction exactly. We were listening to Dizzy and Bird, and we were listening to all the Bach piano players. So my young ears were adjusting to the sound of Bud Powell-influenced piano. So I was well aware of that. When, when Pat brought this record home, jazz track, that has three cuts that were done... I think prior to Kind of Blue, but around the same time with the sextet with Coltrane and Cannibal, Bill plays an introduction on Green to the tune on Green Dolphin Street that just mesmerized me. And it not only set the stage for the solos that follow on that tune, it set the, the, the vibe for the entire album. And that transcended or transported over into the Kind of Blue sessions where, you know, that's what Bill Evans is giving to that music really sets the stage for Kind of Blue in my estimation. I remember I remember asking Bill about that introduction one time. We were at a sound check in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and, you know, being a fan as well. So I'm saying, you know, boy, do you remember that introduction, that great introduction you played out in Green Dolphin? He looks at me like puzzled, like, you know, huh, what are you talking about? <laughs> he sits down to the piano and he starts playing the tune. It's completely different than what he played on the album, you know? <laughs> and that's the way I think a, a great artist works. He played it and he forgot it. That's the right. end of it, you know? Yeah, yeah, well, he was really in the moment.
I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I'm talking with drummer Joe LaBarbera about his new book about touring with Bill Evans during the last years of Bill's life. One of my favorite films is a documentary called The Universal Mind of Bill Evans, where Bill talks with his brother Harry about the creative process. People can see this on YouTube, and... What has struck me through that and other people I've talked to, because I've gotten to talk to a number of people who knew him, and, well, three people have told me that Bill told them, including you now in the book, that he just worked harder than everybody mm-hmm. else. And he isn't putting anyone down. Mm-hmm. He's just saying, I worked really hard. And Chevy Chase said to Bill, well, I wish I could do that. And he said, you can practice eight hours a day. And he wasn't being flipped. No. But... I love that thought because I've always contended that people who say, you're so lucky, you're so talented, that it almost lets everybody off the hook and makes it like, this is magic what we do. It discounts the work. Yes, there's a gift, but there's also a drive and a focus and the hard work. And you wrote that Bill actually said, if I'm getting this quote right, one time he said, well, maybe the, the hard work is the talent. And I just love that. And that really comes across in the book. It's not like this is all work and we're not having any fun or any joy with music. But you make it very clear what this took and what it took for you all as a trio. Speak to that a bit. Well, as far as the hard work element, that built it that very early on. I mean, he dedicated himself. When he got out of the the army in uh, 54, he spent a year and a half before he before he moved to New York because he, he needed to prepare even more than already he had been on the road. Then he was playing in, in Chicago, in and around Chicago for three years. You would think that that would have been enough for any other musician to say, I'm going to go to New York now and, and see how I, how I fare. But no, he spent a year and a half preparing before he went to New York. You know, when I used to teach jazz history, I would tell my students uh, regarding Charlie Parker, how uh, everyone said the same thing about Bird. You have this natural gift, or they would try to uh, they would try to assign his uh, his genius to drugs, which is absurd, right? But in an interview with uh, Paul Desmond, Bird said, for a period of three years, he practiced between eleven and thirteen hours a day. Well, there you go. You know, so and when I, and I would always tell my my drumming students that directly because that's what it takes. To, to achieve that level. It takes that kind of a commitment and that much hard work. Oh, absolutely. I knew somebody who lived downstairs from Art Tatum. He played all the time. Mm. It just never stopped. So fortunately, it was Art Tatum, so it was fun to listen to. Yeah. But Lucky. <laughs> you know, all we did is practice. Something, too, that came across that you captured, which I had already inferred from these things that I've watched, Bill talking, teaching, all of that, was... At least for me, I think a lot of people could look at this and think, well, I'll never attain it, could be discouraged. But what I felt with Bill was always this reinforcement for playing within your own frame of reference, your own skills. That's very much in that conversation with his brother. And he does that beautiful illustration of somebody playing with trying to do more than they can do. Mm which only Bill could do so elegantly, and then doing it, taking it down and making it simple, but it's still beautiful in its simplicity because it's authentic. And that seemed to be 
very much his feeling about well when the you also talk about when the the tour in 79 was canceled when Russia invaded Afghanistan and Bill said I follow my code and I am at peace with myself I just thought that was an epitome of everything I play the music I want not as a highfalutin artist but I'm happy I'll take what comes my way but I'm not happy and playing my best music if I'm doing it to just please the audience to please a promoter any of those things talk about that cuz that you make that very clear in the book and I could tell cuz you were quite young when you were working with him the impression that philosophy made on you as well as the music you're smiling because I was not <laughs> quite me. young I was 30 years old Well, I still think of that as young. I mean, I think of that as young to be into that uh I thought of that when I was reading the book. Yeah. I thought of you as being still early in your career and being in this situation. So talk about that. Well, first of all, what Bill was showing everyone was what what was possible. You know, as long as you're willing to work within your own um framework, your own abilities. and he would refer to uh, people that would that would try to mimic a style you know maybe they could pick up a couple of a, pu- a couple of licks that made it sound right he would refer to that as a veneer and he would say you know mm. it doesn't it doesn't have the 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 substance behind it another fra- a phrase that i hope i put in the book i'm pretty sure i did was you need to let your intuition guide your knowledge Intuitive mm. players will will sound good for about a course and a half or two and then they're going to run out of steam because they don't have anything to back it up. He had lots to back it up and as we started out discussing, he could play stride piano, boogie woogie, bebop, all of those. He had a a a, a wealth of knowledge to draw from. The reason that you know, the avant-garde movement in jazz that was becoming fashionable when he was first hitting the scene in New York or not first hitting the scene but when he was starting to get traction as a uh, a trio artist and a, a trio attraction it had no appeal to him so he was not fascinated by the latest trend he was willing to stay his own course his entire life come what may and so that statement about um I follow my code and I'm a peace with myself that speaks to that directly
I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Our show is made possible in part with generous support from Steinway and Sons. Additional support is provided by Jazz Times Magazine, providing entertaining and provocative coverage of the jazz scene since 1970. On the web at jazztimes.com. For a schedule of upcoming programs, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can listen to Jazz Inspired on your favorite podcast platform and email us at info at jazzinspired.com or visit us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Stride Queen. Although we broadcast on NPR stations, we're an independent production not funded by NPR. Please visit jazzinspired.com to find out how you can chip in and support us. No gift is too small. And please write a review on Apple Podcasts, which is the best way for us to entice others to listen to the show. Thanks for helping us spread the word and celebrate 22 years on air. I'm talking with drummer Joe LaBarbera about working with Bill Evans in his last trio, along with bassist Mark Johnson. Talk about the way the band worked and because that was also beautifully drawn I think even for a non-musician they would understand what you were talking about because it wasn't too technical Mm -hmm. but the importance of Bill's vision for this to be a jazz group that even people who have uh, just a a slight understanding of jazz will know that we're usually playing what we call the head so the melody and then each musician or some of the musicians take their solo. Mm -hmm. So we have our little moment of improvisation. But two things that I loved were not only the concept of the band improvising together as, as a whole, which was very important, but also building a framework of an arrangement. I love how you talked about that, that you have your arrangement, you figure out the harmonic substitutions, all of that. But with that armature, you have so much freedom Mm -hmm. to improvise within that and go even further out and in with the improvisation. So speak to that. It was beautifully rendered. I thought it was great. You know, what you said previously about how much energy an artist has to invest in a piano that's out of tune or not functioning, right? 
that same amount of energy could, could not maybe the same amount, but a, a, a significant portion of that energy could also be invested in kind of trying to come up with a new way to, to play a tune every time. Whereas Bill's approach was, I'm going to come up with an arrangement that's uniquely my own, that works for me, and that's it. And that's the last time we have to think about it. And then going forward, all of our energies can be devoted to the improvisation. Mm. By the time you climb on the bandstand with the Bill Evans, uh, it's expected that you have the kind of experience under your belt to understand how a jazz band's jazz band will function live. So it isn't necessary to explain, you know, I'll play the head and you so you know, none of that. It's all understood. And the communication to work at that level, you know, the traditional straight ahead level is a lot, is intense. You really have to be tuned in constantly. So with that experience of being tuned in, Bill was able to take musicians and then get them gradually to understand how his trio was going to work because there was never any discussion. He would put his hands on the piano and we, you would hear a chord or two and then you would immediately know what the tune mm. was going to be after you'd been mm. with him for a while. And I'm sure all mm -hmm. the musicians that worked with him would tell you the same thing. And in terms of the arrangements, the ones that were already in the book um, when I joined and Mark joined, we tweaked a little bit here and there, but very insignificantly. It would just be a, some, a little something that maybe Mark would throw in or I would throw in that just altered it just minutely. But the, mm. the new tunes that came in the book, then we kind of crafted those together on the bandstand. They evolved to to a performance-ready uh, uh, stage, so that uh, and then when they finally got recorded, that's that's where he wanted them to be.
Bill Evans on piano with my guest Joe LaBarbera on drums and Mark Johnson on bass. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I'm talking to Joe about his new book, Times Remembered, The Final Years of the Bill Evans Trio, which he co-wrote with Charles Levine. In it, he tells a story of Bill Evans playing Carnegie Hall immediately following a car accident, a story both of us related with as musicians who also think the show must go on no matter what. I love that story from Carnegie Hall because it, it shows not only Bill's inner strength, which is the main topic here, but it also shows his, his mischievous side because I'm sure he took a, a certain measure of delight in showing up backstage in the condition that he, that he shows up for. <laughs> in any event, I'll, I'll start from the beginning. We were playing Carnegie Hall for the Newport Jazz Festival and uh, Bill decided to drive back to his apartment in Fort Lee and on the way there, I didn't actually put this in the, I'm remembering this now, I didn't put it in the book. His windshield wipers went out. So now here's Bill Evans driving down the West Side Highway, which is pothole ridden every oh, yeah. step of the way. Always. With yeah. his left arm out the window, trying to wipe the windshield <laughs> at highway speeds. He hit uh. the embankment, obviously did damage to his arm. His head hit the steering wheel. He goes to the emergency room and the doctor wants to put the cast all the way up to here to his fingertips. And Bill says, no, man, you got to stop right here because I got a gig tonight. <laughs> so he does. And we're all waiting uh, backstage for an eight o'clock downbeat at Carnegie Hall, you know, George Ween's office, Helen Keene, Mark and myself. And Bill has never not been on time, ever. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it's like a quarter to eight, and he walks in the back door. He's got his glasses held together with a ru- with a Band-Aid here. He's got stitches here. He's got a Band-Aid across his nose. He's got his left arm in a cast up to the knuckles, and it's in a sling. And he walks in the door, and uh, Bob Jones, I think it was uh, George Ween's ref, says, he looks to Bob, and he says, what time is it? Or maybe it was Mel Torme. I can't remember who it was back days. It's in the book. And and the person says, it's a quarter to eight. And Bill says, oh, good. I've got time for a cup of coffee. <laughs> Takes himself upstairs, gets his coffee. We walk out on stage. He's like that. It's a packed house at Carnegie Hall, and it's a collective gasp from the entire audience, as you can well imagine, right? Oh, of course. Sits down at the piano. Takes his arm out of the sling and sets it on the keyboard. Now I'm, you know how we set up with it with a band, right? So the, your, yeah, your yeah. drummer's off to your left and the bass player's in yeah, the hook. Yeah. So I don't see any of this, and Mark doesn't see any of this. So from that point forward, it was as if there was no problem whatsoever. And Bill said in an audio interview from the CBC years ago, he said that while he acknowledges that his uh, exterior physical being is not the greatest he felt that his inner spirit was totally pure and i really believe that he believed it to the extent that he could draw on that inner strength because there were times honestly when he didn't have the strength to get up and go and play but once he sat down at the piano it was as if he was you know 35 again
Very often people will say to people who are having a drug problem or something like that, you don't know what you're doing to yourself, you know, as if they can just snap, make a decision and stop. I felt like Bill knew what he was doing to himself. Even the story you just told, he knew what this was doing to his body. How could he not? Mm -hmm. But he'd also made this, this is where he was. This was his cross to bear with whatever he was going to do with it. And he was going to go forth, make beautiful music as long as he could, show up on time, be an inspiration for all of us, not only with his music, but with this beautiful philosophy of all the, all the things, we, the joy of discovery, um, all of that that he talked about. So he was a walking form of inspiration on every single level and this is just what it this was his life and I felt that he accepted it with whatever was going to happen and you 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 just because there was no judgment in your book which was really wonderful you just portrayed a life and what it meant to you so speak to that a bit well you're absolutely right about his take on his, what he referred to as a personal problem, which was his, mm -hmm. his drug addiction. You know, in, in the beginning of the book, he says, I live by my code and I am at peace with myself. Well, to follow up on that, the very last interview that he gave, we played a, a homecoming at uh, Southeastern University in uh, Louisiana. He gave an interview and he said that I have precisely fulfilled all of my um all of my aspirations, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but in life to have, to, to reach a position in jazz where I can have a trio and play what I want to play, play the music I want to play. So in his mind, he'd accomplished everything that he wanted to do. The loss really isn't his because he wouldn't feel it. it. The loss is ours. We're the ones that are bemoaning the fact that he's not with us or didn't stay with us longer. That's the unfortunate part. But for Bill, mm. I think he would look back at his life and say, I did it all and exactly the way I, I planned to do it. It may not have been a choice that you or I would have made, but it was his choice. Mm. And most people can't say that. No. Most people don't. That's, that's one of my phrases. Assess your talents accurately and go forth with courage. Mm -hmm. That's what I tell master classes. Nice. And that's really specific. Mm -hmm. Assess your talents accurately. So it's really look at what you've been given, how you can develop it and go forth. And Bill certainly did that in spades. He said something similar to that, Judy. He used to say you have to have realistic expectations. Mm. And mm. I, it's, it says the same thing to me. You know, mm -hmm. a young jazz a young musician or a young artist of any kind, of course, is going to have stars in their eyes, but you've got to really look at the scene, whatever your scene is, whether it's Broadway, movies, music, you've got to look at that scene in its total and understand how it actually functions and then assess your own ability and where you fit in that scene and then mm. try to find a way in the door. Bill had a five-year plan when he moved from New Jersey after the army to New York. He was gonna give himself five years. He was gonna dedicate himself to becoming a jazz musician no matter what. And so he said, at the end of five years, if I don't feel like the world is reacting to what I think I have, 
then maybe I'll make another decision. I'll become somebody's musical director or go into the studios, do something else with music. But he was going to dedicate himself for five years. And I tell the story about um, him being offered the job with uh, Tony Martin, who was a popular singer in, in the 50s. Now, this was 1955 or 56, and Tony Martin's office offered Bill $25,000 a year, which was a princely sum in that in those days, for a 17-week-a-year commitment. 17 weeks and done, 25 Gs. And Bill said it took me all of 10 seconds to turn it down because I knew that that would have that taken me away from my goal. He was perfectly willing to go out and play club dates, bar mitzvahs, weddings, all the things that all of us have had to do when we're coming on up. But he wasn't going to commit to a life with of something else, you know, at that level. And I, that, to me, really tells, tells well, speaks to, to Bill's commitment to the music. He, commitment comes up over and over again in Bill Evans' life. He, he was looking for a commitment from Scott LaFaro and Paul Motion. Once they'd committed to being in the trio, then they were able to make all these great discoveries. And that's all he wanted from any of his band members. He wanted a commitment to be in the band and let's see what we can do with it. Bill Evans with Scott LaFaro and Paul Motion. I'm talking with drummer Joe Barbara, who played in Bill's last trio and has a new book he's written with Charles Levine about that experience called Times Remembered, The Final Years of the Bill Evans Trio. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. How did playing with Bill change your music specifically, if you can... Describe that. Hard thing to describe, I would think. No, I don't think it is. It's just that it was... I had never worked with anybody who was at that level before. You know, I'd worked with really fine artists, and I'm not being... I'm not comparing here, you know, but there's a world of difference between some of the artists that I worked with, and I'm not going to name any names because I think it will come across as being, uh, you know... uh, judgmental but Bill was just a cut above everybody so when you're on the bandstand with him the intensity is so focused it's so it it's so focused it's just you 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 have to be involved every second and I'm I'm sure that's the same on other bandstands but that's just one thing what I took away from Bill Evans was be the strength in a band you know, be the leading force in a band. Be that person that is reassuring to everybody else on the bandstand that everything's going to be fine. Nothing can possibly go wrong. Everything's going to be cool. Putting together a set of music. Where do you start in a set of music? Where does it go to, you know, 
um, time signatures, keys, you know, making it making it an enjoyable event for everybody, band and audience, you know, and pleasing yourself at the same time. Those are just some specifics. But it's just that commitment to what he was doing because he never lost focus, ever. Bill's classic poses where his head drops down like this. And the, so he's got his glasses and there he's pl playing and all and his glasses are working their way like right up to here. <laughs> and Mark and I are thinking they're going to go. And without even batting an eye, his finger comes up, boom, they're back in place. Just <laughs> he's aware of everything on the stage. He's tuned uh. into everything on the stage. And that's something that uh, that also I took away from Bill. Well, talk about this had to be so sweet because you said that Bill called you and played Tiffany yes. over the phone. Talk about this. This is a good. This is a good way for us to finish our conversation because it's just so beautiful to think of him doing that. Talk about that. I was staying with Bill at his apartment and actually wasn't working with Bill. I was working with Jimmy Rolls and George Mraz over at Michael's Pub with Carol Sloan, vocalist who I've worked with many times over the years. And uh, when I got home one night, I think it was my birthday. Maybe it was the next day. I can't remember now. But uh, he left a letter for me on the uh, on the table, and that letter is is in the uh, is in the book. And then he also had he made a recording of "Happy Birthday" for me, which he said, you know, press play on the cassette player. He record so that, okay. So then, either waiting up or he's, uh, yeah, I think he was waiting up for me. He said. Your wife called, you gotta get home right away. She's gone into labor. So I subbed out the gig for the rest of the nights and I raced up to uh, Kingston, New York, which is where we were living. And uh, 
that would have been somewhere around the 27th maybe and my daughter was born on the 29th leap year that year and we called bill and mark and helen with the good news and then uh, two days later i think it was march 2nd bill called the house and he had written this tune and played it for us over the phone which we were knocked out just blown away you know? and then he recorded it on the album So, Joe, thank you for taking the time to do this. I'm such a fan of yours, of your music, of the book. So I hope that lots of people read it and get insight not only into Bill's music, but into this pursuit that we have and of just being in the jazz life. Oh, thank you, Judy. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and uh, continued success out there on the road. I feel for you. There. <laughs> <laughs> I know we're here. We can see each other and you're seeing the back of my hotel room. I've got two more days here and then I'm off to Washington. Then I'm finally home. Well, safe travels. Best of luck. And once again, thanks for the opportunity to speak with you today. Absolutely. Thank you. You've been listening to my conversation with Joe LaBarbera. I hope you'll join me here next time when I talk with another creative person about how jazz inspires their life and work. I'm Judy Carmichael, the host and producer of Jazz Inspired. My production engineer is Curtis Heidolf. You can listen to Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired on all podcast platforms and at jazzinspired.com. Our opening music was Airmail Special, and the mid-break music is a smooth one from my CD, High on Fats and Other Stuff. The closing music is Old Fashioned Love from my CD trio. I'm on piano with Mike Hashem on sax and Chris Flory on guitar. Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is sponsored in part with generous support from our listeners and Paige at 63 Main in Sag Harbor, New York, serving organic microgreens and vegetables grown on their own energy-efficient indoor and outdoor aquaponic farms. Better taste, happier planet. Visit Paige at 63 Main at opentable.com. 
And please tell your friends about Jazz Inspired and help us spread the word. For more information, visit jazzinspired.com or judycarmichael.com.